People have gathered around ideas since the beginning of time, each successful collaboration pushing innovation forward, building a stronger future. Motorist Insurance Group and Brick Street Insurance have combined decades of experience to create an even better one-stop shop for agents and policyholders, encircling businesses and individuals with coverage at every step in life's journey. We are now in Cova Insurance. Welcome back to your favorite wrestling podcast, as well it should be, because let's face it, this is the best wrestling podcast on the planet. This is the Voices of Wrestling podcast. I, of course, am an internationally acclaimed broadcast journalist, as heard on BBC Radio, Joe Lanza, the king of banter himself. And we're back after a a bit of a hiatus caused by, uh, well, number one, Rich is off in South Carolina getting married to the nurse who has sort of been a supporting player on this show over the years as uh, they get married out on the uh, beaches of South Carolina this upcoming weekend. I thought they were getting married last weekend, but as it turns out, um, I, I'm lost as usual. I had bad information. They're actually getting married this weekend, the weekend of the, uh, I guess, the 15th through 17th. I think they're getting married on Saturday the 16th. Is Saturday the 16th? Yeah, I think they're getting married on Saturday the 16th. So, Rich has been gone. He's been in North Carolina doing his thing with the nurse. He hasn't been able to do a show. I came back from Dallas sick as a dog, like most people who went to Dallas uh, came came back. I mean, I don't know what it is. It, it seems like half the people who went to Dallas returned from Dallas sick. And... I don't know if it was a case of too many unsanitized hands doling out too many handshakes or something in the air or everybody packed together in close quarters and all of these small buildings watching, you know, wrestling shows. I don't know what it was, but a lot of people came back from Dallas sick. In my case, it might have been some rare Australian flu strain of some type, but that is a story for another podcast at another time. Definitely not this podcast. Maybe Lanza Unfiltered, which also has been on hiatus. Because when I came back from Dallas ill, and I didn't have the flu, by the way, because if you listen to Lanza Unfiltered, as I explained, much like Donald Trump, I have never had the flu. Nobody believes Donald Trump when he says that, and nobody believes me either, but I I swear to God, I've never had the flu. I don't think I've ever had the flu. And if I've had the flu... I don't, I didn't know that I had the flu. And, and it's not as debilitating as you people make it out to be. Because from everything that I'm told, when you have the flu, you are just completely out of commission. You're bedridden. You don't want to move. It, you know, you feel like you want to die. I've never felt like that from, you know, I, I know I've had the common cold. I know I've been sick. I know I've been under the weather. But I, I genuinely don't believe I've ever had the flu. I've never gone to the doctor and the doctor has said, Joe, you've got the flu. So here's your prescription. Here's your excuse. You don't have to go to work. Because you've got the flu. You've got the influenza. I've never had No, I've never had it. I don't know what people talking about with the flu. But whatever I came back with from Dallas, here was the problem, okay? I wasn't feeling well. But... The reason there was no podcast, because I 1,000% would have done a show by myself last week after I got back from Dallas. 
regardless, you know, whether whether it was Richmond, South Carolina or not, was I had no voice. My voice was completely shot. I couldn't speak. You know, I sounded like Tomoaki Hanma. And if you don't know what he sounds like, you know, you could YouTube that and, and check that out. He sounds like a movie monster. But yeah, I couldn't talk. So there, you know, there was no way I was going to get through you know, a multi-hour podcast, let alone two podcasts. So Lands Unfiltered went on the shelf as well. And then by the time I had my voice back, you know, I was going to record, I was going to put one out a little later in the week. But by the time I got my voice back and yeah, it was already, you know, well into the weekend. And I figured, you know what, we're just going to skip the week. I'll just do put out the regularly scheduled show next week. And that is the show you're listening to right now. And as a result because we've missed a week, I've got a lot to get to. We had the Invasion Attack show, which was a big-time show. Arguably the third or the fourth biggest New Japan show of the year, depending on whose opinion you ask. I tend to think it's the third biggest. And it was a tremendous show. And that's what we're going to lead off with. Then later on, we're going to talk about some wrestling news, uh, predominantly the the Octagon story, which I think is woefully underreported. This story with Octagon and Octagon Jr., which is uh, just an amazing story coming out of Mexico. And I talked to some people, some insiders, and exchanged some emails and, and whatnot with some people. I think I've got a few uh, details that have yet to be reported on that story. And we're going to do that probably in the second segment here as we move along. And then, of course, look, just because I didn't do a show last week doesn't mean we're going to blow off WrestleMania weekend. I mean, I was in Dallas for four days or whatever it was. I went to a million shows. And I'm going to recap WrestleMania weekend for you. I'm probably not going to recap WrestleMania. I think everybody's wrestlemania it out. You've probably listened to a million podcasts already, read your newsletters. You know, everyone's, you've gotten your fill of WrestleMania. But the weekend itself, I was there, man. So I will give you my perspective of WrestleMania weekend, some of the shows I went to, and some of my uh, thoughts of, the, of uh, what occurred down there in Dallas. So we'll probably do that in the third segment. But first, I think we have to lead off with Invasion Attack. That's the fresh story. And that's what deserves initial attention here on this show. Because Tetsuya Naito, we could be on the verge of something with this guy. And that's the big story coming out of Invasion Attack. Tetsuya Naito finally wins the IWGP title. Finally. After... Years and years of New Japan grooming him, preparing him, touting him as the next big thing, the wrestling genius, which I never quite understood. Look, I've never been a huge fan of this guy. But like everybody else, I'm all wrapped up in the new Tetsuya Naito with the Los Ingobernobilis D-Japan deal. Because he's really on the something, and New Japan's on the something with this guy. And he finally won his title. 
And he, he beat the right guy for it in Kazuchika Okada, who New Japan... Let's face it. Okada blew by Naito in the pecking order when he came back from America in 2012. Blew right by him. And he wasn't the only guy. Then then AJ Styles showed up and he blew right by Naito in the pecking order. And on this show, on this show, I wrote off Tetsuya Naito for good as a top-line main event star for New Japan. You guys think I'm this arrogant guy who, you know, never admits when he's wrong. Well, there's one right there. I went, came on this show and told you that his days as a New Japan a, a headliner, a top guy in New Japan, a top star, that the ship had sailed and, and it, 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 it was over for him, along with Hiroki Goto. In fact... I believe when I made that proclamation was after last year's invasion attack. One year ago. And a lot has changed since then. He went to Mexico. He picked up the Los Ingobernobiles gimmick. And it completely changed his fortunes. The stardust version of Tetsuya Naito was never going to be a top line main event star. So I'm kind of half wrong and half right. Because that, that version of Naito was never going to be a top-line guy. It just wasn't clicking at that level. This version of Tetsuya Naito is one of the breakout stars in all of wrestling for 2016. You got this guy. You got another guy in the same company, Kenny Omega. And you've got Will Ospreay, who I guess is a third guy in this company who really right now are the three breakout stars in pro wrestling in 2016. But this show, what let me tell you, what what a what a ton of fun this show was. This invasion attack show. Just a ton of fun. And that's really been the theme of New Japan in 2016 ever since the Tokyo Dome. Wrestle Kingdom was a great show, and it's going to be a show of the year contender again. The New Year Dash show was a tremendous show the next day. I mean, that was the show where Kenny Omega beat Nakamura and turned on AJ Styles, and that was just a a ton of fun. It was the best Fantastic Mania tour ever, and I think that's pretty much universally agreed upon. The New Beginning shows were great. The Cork and Hall shows have juice again. New Japan has been a fun company in 2016. Just a fun company to follow, a fun company to watch, fun booking, everything. And the second half of 2015 was dry as a bone. Dry as a bone. Not the whole year. The first half of the year last year, New Japan had a tremendous first half of the year. They really did. There was a lot going on. But it seemed like, I guess, after like the first week of the G1, which was great. I mean, that first week of the G1 last year was just outstanding. And was really the last stand for Kota Ibushi in terms of, uh, you know, having great matches in this company. And it was all downhill from him from there from a booking standpoint and everything else. 
And then everything after the first week of the G1, it was sort of like a slow decline, and it's just stale rematches that no one wanted to see, and it became a boring company. A boring company that was still delivering great matches, but a company where the booking had become very stale, and it just wasn't a very exciting promotion to follow. And that all seemed to change on a dime at the beginning of 2016, straight through this Invasion Attack show. Now, the prevailing thought from a lot of people, and this is sort of the narrative out there right now, and this is what I want to lead off with before I get into the nuts and bolts of the show. Uh, you know, the, the running narrative is, well, the, the defections, the people leaving for WWE, the talent raid, whatever you want to call it, was the kick in the ass that New Japan needed. It was the impetus that Gato needed to shake things up from a booking perspective. And it was the kick in the ass the company needed to freshen things up. And oh boy, why this is the best thing that ever could happen to New Japan. You know, I, I don't, you know, it's, I'm not sure a lot of these, a, a, a lot of this freshening up and a lot of these new pushes wouldn't have happened regardless. You know, this idea that all of these new pushes and all of these new guys being being uh, given new roles in New Japan was a result of AJ Styles, Shinsuke Nakamura, Carl Anderson, and Doc Gallows, um, and Kota Ibushi leaving the company. I, 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 you know, the timelines just don't necessarily add up for all that. I mean, let's take a look at who's being pushed in New Japan this year as opposed to last year or being pushed harder than they were last year and we'll go case by case and we'll and we'll, and we'll see if this is a result of, of all of those other talents moving on to uh, WWE which is where Kota Ibushi obviously is, is turning up too I mean let's be honest he hasn't shown up yet like the other four but he will so who, who's gotten who's, who's, who's gotten pushed this year Kenny Omega right so let's take a look at Kenny Omega's push. Is that a direct result of the talent leaving? Well, the timelines don't really add up, and I'm going to explain to you how. From every report that we've gotten, a good chunk of that talent didn't give notice until the day of the Tokyo Dome show, Wrestle Kingdom, January 4th. And all of the reports tend to agree, the people we've spoken to, privately, Dave Meltzer, other people who reported on the story at the time, that Gato and Jado, the, the quote that we got, were jaws on the floor at some of the guys giving notice that day. They were shocked. And that they did not panic, and the booking for the show, the Tokyo Dome show, did not change. It would have been very easy to change some of the booking around on that show based on the fact that a lot of the guys were going to be leaving at the end of the month or sooner. But that wasn't the case. The booking stayed the same. Okay, with that knowledge, circling back to Kenny Omega here, Kenny Omega lost the junior title to Kushida on that show via a cradle, which was key, with one shoulder up, which is key. He didn't tap out to the hoverboard lock. 
He didn't look bad in defeat. He kind of got cradled up, and it was a questionable pinfall. And we all know that his heavyweight push was coming at some point, but it was very clear based on the booking of the, of the Wrestle Kingdom show, and then of course what happened the next day, that Kenny Omega's push was coming. And his push was coming whether those five guys left the company or not. So the Kenny Omega push does not work for this narrative. It just doesn't. And the fact of the matter is, I, you know, wh- whether it sped up his push, I, I don't know. But what I know is this. Kenny Omega was getting pushed this year as a heavyweight. I think there's no question. Now, did the 1-5 show play out the way that they planned it to play out before the notices were given? I don't know. I haven't, you know, I haven't spoken to anybody. I haven't read any reports uh, either way. To me, I feel like that all played out the way it was going to play out before the notices were given. I think they knew AJ was gone. I think they knew he was leaving. I think AJ knew he was going to be in the Royal Rumble by that point. I think AJ was gone on the 5th, whether the other guys gave their notice or not. And I think the plan, and this is just my opinion now, was for that angle with Kenny Omega to play out with AJ Styles that way regardless. His push was coming. Now, if AJ Styles had stayed in the company, was Omega's push coming? I believe it was. And I believe Kenny Omega turning on AJ Styles was, going, was always going to be the impetus to Omega's push because you go back to last year's Invasion Attack when Kenny, Ome- when Kenny Omega was side-eyeing AJ Styles and we all went nuts over it and then it seemed to go nowhere. Well, it came full circle after Wrestle Kingdom and I think that was going to happen regardless. I really do. So I don't think Kenny Omega fits into this narrative. I do not think the Kenny Omega push was a result of, oh shit, we lost a half a dozen guys. Let's push Kenny Omega. I think they were pushing him anyway. So that's Kenny Omega. Next up, Tetsuya Naito, the new IWGP heavyweight champion. Was his push the result of a half a dozen talents leaving the company? Well, obviously not. His push started last year when he came back from Mexico. This has been in the cards for like 10 months. So that doesn't fit either. It just doesn't make any sense. He's been been getting pushed for 10 months. Or whatever it was that he came back. He was already doing this gimmick in the G1. That was in August. Naito was going to get pushed either way. Again, did the push sort of, was it expedited due to people leaving? A very good chance it was. Would he be champion today if AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura were still in the company? Maybe not. But the push was coming regardless. And it was going to be a big one. He was already getting over. At the le- it was already easy to tell at the end of last year. By the end of last year, by the fall of last year, and particularly by the end of last year, 
it was very obvious he was getting over at the top level. And, and he, you know, that push was coming no matter who left the company or who stayed with the company. So that, that's another one you can cross off the list. Does not fit into the narrative. It just doesn't. Tamatanga. Tamatanga just worked the semi-main event of Invasion Attack. Easily, without question, the biggest match of his career. I mean, Invasion Attack is one of the six or seven biggest pro wrestling shows on the planet in a given year. This one drew a sellout in Sumo Hall. And Tama Tonga, the Bullet Club job guy, for how many years since, the, since he joined the Bullet Club, worked the semi-main event of this show. He's getting the biggest push of his life. Is it a result of a half a dozen talents leaving New Japan. Well, again, the timeline just doesn't add up. The beginning of Tamatanga's push goes back to the 3rd of January, the day before the Tokyo Dome show, where they run that little two or three match card and all of the participants on the Wrestle Kingdom show come out and they do their, their, their final push, their final promo for the show. It's sort of New Japan's version of what WWE does at WrestleMania for access. It's their version of access is basically what it is. It's a one-day access. They're signing autographs. They're selling gimmicks. There's a little shit. They do a little three-match, two- or three-match show of the people who aren't involved, who aren't booked on the uh, Wrestle Kingdom show the next day. And that's when the Tamatanga push began. Because when he came out, to cut his promo for his match. He gave his little version of the pipe bomb and complained about not getting pushed and this is going to be Tamatanga's year and I want gold and this and that and he threw the, you know, he did a mic drop and he stormed out of there. And it was actually the most memorable thing. I don't even remember what matches were on the third, but I remember his promo. It was the most memorable thing on that obnoxiously long seven-hour New Japan World broadcast that they do of that thing, which me and 20 other idiots sit through the whole thing, and, you know, it's intolerable. But that's, that was the most memorable moment off of that 1-3, uh, you know, I forget what they call it, the, the Wrestle Kingdom Festival or whatever. It, is. it was Tamatanga's promo. And we were like, holy shit, they're going to push this guy. Because I didn't think he had gone into business for himself. And again, if a good chunk of these guys who left didn't give notice until the next day at the Tokyo Dome, then the timelines don't add up. This was not some kind of emergency push of Tamatanga. They were planning on pushing him anyway. These are just facts. I'm just looking at the timelines here. He was in a title match at the, on the Tokyo Dome show. And then he won that title a couple weeks later. Now again, you can make the argument that his push was expedited. Would he have been in the semi-main event of Invasion Attack if those five talents didn't leave? Probably not. But was the push coming? Absolutely. The timeline says it was. Who else is being pushed this year that wasn't being pushed last year? 
Tomoaki Hanma. Tomoaki Hanma hasn't been pushed since he returned to the company from being fired however many years ago for the ticket-selling scandal. He's been the lovable loser. He's been a jobber. One of the best workers in the world. One of the most charismatic and over... One of the most charismatic and over people on the roster. But a jobber all the same. This is a guy who hadn't won a singles match since like, you know, 2012 or whatever it was. Until the final match of the G1 in 2015... Or was it the second to last match? I forget which match. I think he lost his final match to Yujiro. He beat Ishii on the second to last night and then lost to Yujiro. I think that's what it was. Point being, he finally won a match in last year's G1 when he beat Tomohiro Ishii in Korokin Hall. And, 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 and that was the beginning of his elevation. People, that was in August. Long before they knew anyone was leaving. You know, reports surfaced after the fact that New Japan was kind of privy to the idea that Nakamura was thinking about leaving in December. So, even if they kind of had an inkling that he was going, even if they kind of had an inkling that AJ was going... They didn't know in August. Okay? They didn't know in August. And the other two guys, Guns and Gallows, you know, they gave notice, uh, you know, on the 4th. And, and, and I believe the other guys all gave their official notice on the 4th as well. So it's like, Hanma's push started in August. This, is, this was not an emergency push. This was long-term planning. They had them plot. They had they had Great Bash heel Hanma and Makabe plotted out to win the World Tag League months in advance. And do you know how we know that for a fact? You know how we know that for a fact because Hanma's domestic abuse situation surfaced right around the time of the World Tag League, and it became news. And the thought was, are they going to change the booking for the World Tag League? Which they obviously did not. And then they won the titles at the Tokyo Dome as planned, which was obviously and clearly planned for months. His push started at the G1. And, and, and that's a guy who, you know, when it comes to his push, I don't even think where you can argue that Naito's and certainly Tamatanga's pushes were expedited a bit by people leaving and clearing a path higher on the card a bit sooner than maybe the company had planned for those guys. Hanma's push, I don't think, was changed one iota by people leaving the company. I really don't. That played out exactly how it was going to play out whether anybody walked out. And he may have gotten elevated the furthest. I mean, you know, him and him and Tomatonga. I mean, Naito went from semi-main eventer, 
you know, guy who couldn't break through the glass ceiling to top-level star. Kenny Omega went from a guy who we all knew was temporarily going to be a junior and was eventually going to be a heavyweight star and was already established draw in the, in the country to, you know, they were just biding their time with him. Hanma went from a jobber to a semi-main event guy and champion. Same for Tamatanga. And his push was planned for months. So this was not some, ah, well, you know, push came to shove for New Japan. They had to, had to push that Hanma guy. No, no, no. He's, he's, he's the easiest example of, of, of falsely feeding into this narrative. I mean, when you really look at the timelines and look at the facts, these, these guys were going to get pushed anyway. I mean, what really, you know, maybe a few of them were expedited a bit. And then you have other people like uh, Michael Elgin and, um, um, you know, we still don't, look, look, obviously he's at a high, you know, he came in at the G1, impressed everybody, earned himself a two-year contract. But, but even when you look at Michael Elgin, who did he team with at World Tag League? He teamed with the biggest star in the company. So it's not like they just decided to push the button on him in 2016 either. He's another guy whose push began in 2015. One last guy, and then we'll get into the actual event. Shibata. It's very obvious that Shibata is perhaps getting the biggest push of all of the new people who have been pushed, with the possible exception of Naito. It's neck and neck between Shibata and Omega. But it may actually be Shibata who ultimately gets the bigger push. Why? He finally signed a New Japan contract. Because all of this time since he returned, since Laughter 7 returned, When Kadani brought those guys back against the wishes, by the way, of some of the bigger stars in New Japan. And that's all been smoothed over since for the most part. But they didn't want those guys back. They didn't want Shibata back. Sakuraba, he is what he is. But they, they didn't want Shibata. There was a lot of bitterness there. But he had not been an official New Japan roster member. I mean, he hadn't really been working anywhere else. But technically, he was a freelancer. He finally signed a deal. And this, and, and of course, um, you know, finally won a singles title, won the never title. And this is the one example, I think, of somebody on the roster who you can make an argument that his push is a direct result of the talent leaving the company. Now, he was booked to win the Never title at Tokyo Dome before, you know, obviously the timeline issues apply to him the same as everyone else because, you know, his, his, his push began at the Tokyo Dome. But here's the difference with Shibata. I'm not so sure he has a contract right now if that talent doesn't leave. 
And without that contract, they were never truly going to go all the way with him. And I think now that they do have him under contract, they are going to go all the way with him. Now, he may have ended up signing that contract anyway. But I think that his contract and the, con- and the two-year deal for Michael Elgin and the contracts that were given to the other people who were flirting with WWE, such as Bad Luck Fale, Rocky Romero, Tama Tonga, they all got two-year deals. And I think all of those two-year deals... And Shibata finally getting a deal were part of Kadani's sort of change of philosophy that this is a whole new world that we're in and you've got to lock these guys up. And I do think that you can make a solid argument that Shibata getting the contract when he got it was not just dumb luck or or just... Uh, that was spurred on by the fact that this company said, oh shit, we need to lock people up. We got to shit or get off the pot with Shibata and get him under contract. We got to get him in a room and we can't let him leave until his name is on a piece of paper. And they got him locked up and I do think that's going to lead to a big push for him. I'm going to share with you a small anecdote which I think shows, you know, it, it may not seem like a big deal. Well, let me, let, me, let me explain it first. If you watch New Japan World on, on, on uh, Chromecast or whatever the Apple gimmick is called, AirPlay, whatever they call their gimmick, if you leave the screen idle for a few minutes, a screensaver pops up. And what this screensaver is is sort of a slideshow. And you get a picture of one of the New Japan stars and then there's some artwork with their name and then it just, it, it cycles through, through, you know, four or five guys. And that screensaver used to feature Tanahashi, Okada, Nakamura, AJ Styles, and Togi Makabe. Now, some of you may be thinking, what the hell was Makabe doing in there? But you have to understand, Togi Makabe is a is one of their bigger mainstream stars. He's in the mix. He's he appears on daytime talk shows. He has a big following among housewives. He has some sponsorship deals with snack cakes and all this other bullshit. And he headlines two or three smaller shows a year. They can count on him to fill up a two or three thousand seat building in a main event. So that's where Makabe gets in the mix. But my point is this. When Nakamura and AJ Styles left the company, they were removed from that from that New Japan World screensaver. Whose images replaced them? Tetsuya Naito and Katsuyori Shibata. And again, you might be on the other end of this podcast thinking, who cares? It's the New Japan World screensaver. 98% of the fans will never see the thing. But it does matter. It does matter because look who was on that screensaver before and now look who's on it now. And you know, I tweeted that out as sort of a throwaway tweet a few months ago when I noticed it. And people from Japan, your Chris Charlton's of the world, people like that who covered a company in Japan, said that it absolutely means something. Because they would never put a guy like Shibata, it seems like a small thing, but they would not do something like that with Shibata before he signed that contract. They just wouldn't. 
Shabbat is in the mix now. This is a guy they're going to elevate this year. You're going to see him headline some shows. I guarantee it. So anyway, I'm not so sure that this narrative of, of, well, everybody left, so things had to get exciting around. I mean, look, yes, you're getting fresher faces in different places on the cards. There's no question about that. And yes, some of the people leaving did, you know, open up slots on the card for, for, for new people to occupy. But look, the facts and the timeline say that these guys were going to get pushed this year anyway. This was not going to be an extension of the back end of 2015. I truly believe New Japan was going to be, was going to feel fresh and was going to, things were going to be freshened up whether any of those guys left or not. Whether they all left, none of them left, some of them left, I really believe that was going to be the case. Now look, anytime you remove Doc Gallows from a promotion, things are obviously going to freshen up. Because he stinks. And everyone's tired of him. But you get the point I'm making here. I, I, don't, I don't think Shinsuke Nakamura being around was going to make New Japan uh, you know, less of a promotion this year. I mean, it's silly. I think Kenny Omega would be getting pushed just the same. And Naito was a train that just wasn't going to be stopped. Let's face it. And that main event an invasion attack against uh, Okada, well, that was some match, and it was a completely different kind of match. But it was great because the crowd was so great in this match. I mean, it was very obvious from the start of the show that this was going to be a pro-Naito crowd. You know, the live reports we got earlier in the night that it was a the crowd skewed younger. There were a lot of people in their early to mid-20s and they all had their Los Ingobernobles shirts. And there were Naito chants. And, you know, and, you know I, I thought it was going to be a 50-50 crowd before the show. And it turns out from people who were there live, they, they felt like it was 80-20 in favor of Naito, which is crazy. But it made for a great atmosphere. And I got to tell you, coming into the show, I was of the belief that it was a little too soon for Naito, and they should hold off until Osaka. Osaka, of course, being the building where he gets booed out of the building relentlessly ever since he made that statement where he said, the next time you see me here in Osaka, I'm going to be champion, or you can boo me for the rest of my career. Well, you know how that went. He won the G1, his push flopped, He did not win the title, and they've been booing him in Osaka ever since. So like a lot of people, I thought that would be a great environment for him to finally win the title while getting booed literally out of the building. But when I saw the atmosphere for this show, it was very obvious that this was the night he had to win. It just did Timing is everything in wrestling, and this was the proper timing for this man to win the title. There's no question about it. It would have been th- th- he he was peaking here. You you, you didn't want to. You wouldn't have wanted to wait. Th- th- he ha- if if Okada was was booked to win this match, this would have been the time to call a last minute audible. Naito had to win on this invasion attack show. He just had to. 
The stars had all aligned for him. And he won. And there was a lot of bullshit in the match, but the Los Ingobernobilis thing is fresh. And it featured the debut of their newest member, Sonata. And none of it felt excessive and none of it felt like it hurt the match at all. Now, in six months, in a year, in a year and a half or whatever, in three months, whatever the case may be, if the Los Ingobernobilis matches keep going this way with the rampant interference, could it jump the shark the way the Bullet Club did? It could. Could it, could it be a negative the way that all of the Suzuki gun stuff and Noah has become a negative in every single title match? It absolutely could. But we haven't reached that point yet. And I'm going to be a little bit of a hypocrite here. I flipped the fuck out when Yujiro became a member of the Bullet Club, interfered in an IWGP heavyweight title match between AJ Styles and Okada. So I said, look, you could do that shit up and down the card. I don't like it in IWGP heavyweight title matches. I hate it. And I ranted right on this show and complained about it. And this IWGP heavyweight title match was loaded with the same type of shenanigans, but I listen, I didn't mind it. I don't know what I don't know what you want me to say. I didn't mind. In this case, I didn't mind it. I thought it worked. And and it all just felt right. I don't know how else to put it. I thought the Sonata debut. Now here's the funny thing about the Sonata debut. He takes off the mask and nobody knew who he was in that building. I'm sorry, nobody knew who he was. But even though it didn't get over in the moment, I think once word started spreading around, you almost got the feeling that no one knew who he was at first, number one, because he's been, you know, he's been the Wrestle One guy and he's been in bummy places like, and he's been bumming around in Big Japan and places like that. And, and, and I just think a lot of the fans just didn't know who the hell he was. The other thing was he has changed his look. I don't think a lot of the fans recognized him, even the ones who knew who he was at first. But once I think some of the fans figured out who he was and word started spreading around the place, it was funny because it slowly started to get over. And then by the end of the match and the end of the post-match beatdowns, it was pretty obvious that this was a really cool addition to the stable. And, And look... Sonata's going to be a player in New Japan. Sonata is going to be a player in this company. And he's a guy who, he came back from America. He wanted to catch on in America and it didn't work out for him. He had the TNA run. And a lot of people are saying, you know, oh, this is just, this is deja vu all over again. TNA did nothing with this guy. They did nothing with Okada. Let me tell you something. TNA treated this guy a lot better than they treated Okada. His run wasn't so bad in TNA. He was an X-Division champion. He had a nice little feud with Austin Aries. They took care of him until he got involved in that James Storm stuff. Then it became just a disaster, but he was on his way out by then anyway. But he had a nice little run there. They took care of him. And then he stuck around in America for a while. I know he worked King of Trios and 
he worked for some indies here or there. I know he worked in, in Chicago. I think he worked for AAW, uh, did a couple shots for them. And look, it just didn't work out for the guy here. And he went back to Japan. And, you know, he went back to Wrestle 1. And then he's been working these weird mid-card matches in places like Big Japan. And um, now it's very obvious why. I mean, New Japan obviously made a play for this guy months ago and, and, and plotted this out and... We're planning on bringing him into the fold, which is why none of these other promotions were giving him any kind of serious push. He's also a guy who's tailor-made for modern New Japan. He has those, you know, he's a good-looking guy. He has those matinee idol looks, and New Japan obviously have gone after, you know, women as uh, they've marketed their product towards women uh, very strongly ever since Kadani has taken over. And he fits that profile. He's a good-looking guy. He has that sort of matinee idol look that New Japan likes in their main eventers. There were a million reasons to bring this guy to New Japan. And New Japan was taking a lot of heat, actually, for not bringing him in. He was kind of just floating around as a freelancer. And people were like, why the hell is it New This guy fits New Japan like a glove. Well, little did we know, he was already in the fold. And, you know, they were just waiting for this to, to spring him on everybody. Crafty little move for New Japan. Let me tell you something. They certainly took their lumps from WWE. There's no question. They lost uh, Nakamura. That's an enormous loss. Okay. They lost AJ Styles. Look, I have downplayed that one. Not that it wasn't a big deal, but I don't think it's as big a deal as people think. I think Kenny Omega steps right into that role and they don't miss a beat. And I think where AJ Styles is the kind of guy who no doubt who no doubt helped pop attendance on some of the bigger shows and was a legitimate draw for that company. I don't think that the loss of AJ Styles, I don't think AJ Styles hurts the rank-and-file house show tours for New Japan. I don't think there's people not coming to the rank-and-file shows because AJ Styles isn't on them. Where I think the loss of Nakamura unquestionably hurts when it comes to the rank-and-file show. That's where I think Styles and Nakamura are different. And I think Omega will, will credibly replace Styles as a big show draw. Nakamura will be very hard to replace. So anyway, they lose Nakamura. They lose AJ Styles. They lose Carl Anderson, who was there for seven or eight years. They lose Doc Gallows. Eh, big deal. They lose Kota Ibushi, who I kind of feel like they knew they were losing towards the back end of last year anyway. He's a major loss. But, you know, they won the small battles. They retained Rocky Romero. They retained Bad Luck Fale. They retained Tama Tonga. And now they bring in Sonata. Which not only fits him like a glove, but this is, it, it kind of breaks, he's not a New Japan system guy. He was an all Japan guy. And then you know, he went off on excursion with Kai to Mexico years ago. And then they came back. And then during one of the million all Japan splits, they, they, you know, they ended up on the wrestle one side and Kai and Sonata were the two top stars of wrestle one. When they, they main evented the first wrestle one show and they had their rivalry and, and Kai was the guy that they went with, and Sonata was the guy that they sent to America. And that turned out to be a mistake. 
because the Kai thing hasn't worked out. Sonata ended up letting his contract expire with Wrestle 1. And they lost him. And the best thing that ever happened to Sonata was being the one to go to America and get the hell away from Wrestle 1 because Wrestle 1 was an absolute disaster during that period. They've rehabbed themselves a bit now. They're still just a glorified indie. But during that period, they were an absolute disaster. And it may have ruined Kai's career being the top star in Wrestle 1. It did a lot of damage to him, and, and he's, he suffered the consequences. And Sonata got to get away from all that. So he comes back, and he's perfect fit for New Japan, and, and, and they scooped him up. And I really think he's going to be a player. He won't be a tippy-top, top-line player right off the bat, but he's going to be a player. He's got everything they look for, and he can work at the New Japan level. So that came off well. That angle worked out. And he's going to slide right into a feud with Kazuchika Okada. How about that? I mean, that right there tells you he's going to be a player. His first singles match is going to be on Sokata, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So that was your title match. And I guess we'll work backwards. We're not going to talk about some of the prelims on Invasion Attack. But I'll tell you, another thing too, after Naito won the title, I wanted to mention this too. He sort of cut his promo, and then he sort of tossed the title over his shoulder as if, eh, You know, that was big, and that was symbolic. Not only because it fits his gimmick and it fits his character, but that was also his way of saying, yeah, you're all cheering me now, and yeah, the company's behind me now, but you know what? You weren't behind me two years ago. You let all these guys pass me by, so you know what? The hell with your title. That was kind of sticking it to everyone by tossing that title over his shoulder. Very symbolic. And I'll tell you, this show drawing a sellout with Naito and Okada, okay? Naito's there. He's there already. This is a, They've replaced one of those missing stars already. And, and Omega's well on his way. Now, I'll tell you, people give this Gato a lot of shit. It's, it's amazing to me, you know? It's, look, I get it. When you're one of the bigger companies in the world, your New Japan, your WWE, your booking is going to be scrutinized more than your big Japans or your AAWs or, you know, whoever the fuck. I get it. But, you know, no booker has successfully elevated or created more drawing stars than Gato has since 2012. And I challenge anyone to challenge me on that. I wrote about it at length in the 2015 New Japan Year in Review, which is still available to purchase, name your price, on our website or on Amazon for the Kindle version, $4.99. Read my entry for Gato, because I didn't talk about his matches, okay? I talked about uh, his year as a booker and his actually his past few years as a booker and how he gets unfair criticism. This is a guy who has, has either successfully elevated or flat out created more 
true drawing stars than any other booker in the world since 2012, and it isn't even close. I mean, you can focus on your your rematches and your boring booking and, um, you know, not giving a shit about the junior tag titles with that hot potato situation and how uh, the tag team wrestling in general in New Japan has been ignored. And look, every booker has warts and he's far from perfect. And me and Rich spent an entire show towards the end of last year going through all of the problems in New Japan and all of the problems in the New Japan booking. But when it comes to the big picture, this guy does an excellent job. Excellent job. I mean, people were getting out the shovel for this company when Nakamura and Styles and the other guys left. And, you know, this guy had people, as I predicted, by the way, I was one of the only people, the only, forget one of the only, I was the only person saying that this company was prepared to handle those losses because they had plenty of depth on the bench in terms of people who were ready to become stars. And it was all about the execution. And the execution on Kenny Omega has been picture perfect. You couldn't push somebody better. And he passed his first test when he headlined one of the New Beginning shows and sold out the building. And the Naito push has been handled perfectly to the point that you just saw this guy become a top-tier star in Invasion Attack. He sold out the building, got over like a million bucks, won the title, and away you go with that guy. I mean, what more do you want from Gato? All the guy does is elevate people and create stars. Going back to 2012. Whether it's Okada out of nowhere. Prince Devitt being elevated. Devitt leaves, no problem. Who does he do? He brings in AJ Styles. And if you think that was some kind of no-brainer, go back to when they brought in AJ Styles. AJ Styles was not the AJ Styles that he is now when they brought in AJ Styles. He was coming off the TNA run. WWE didn't want him. They offered him $50,000 a year. That tells you what people thought of AJ Styles at the time. They offered him fifty grand, or whatever it was to come to NXT. He was no hot commodity. Who took a chance on AJ Styles? Gato did. Who retained faith in Gato in AJ Styles when his first main event bombed? Gato did. Who elevated AJ Styles into one of the biggest drawing stars in the world to where he became a hot commodity and bypassed NXT, which nobody does, got a huge money deal from WWE, and debuted at the Royal fucking Rumble. Gato did. Okada was one of the biggest risks we've seen in wrestling in terms of a push in a decade. And Gato had the guts to put him over Tanahashi, coming off of an awful match against Yoshihashi at Wrestle Kingdom the month before. A terrible match. He got booed. He got booed when he challenged Tanahashi. He stuck with it. He stuck to the plan because he knew that Okada was going to become an enormous star. And people bash this guy. And why do they bash him? For the little things. Oh, 
There's too many Gaijin juniors in the company. Oh, there's too many rematches. You know what? That is the that's the minutiae. That's the those are little things. When you look at the big picture, this guy's done a tremendous job. What's the Booker's job? What is the Booker's job? The Booker's job is to make the most money for the company and constantly create new stars. And that's what Gato has done. He's constantly created stars and elevated people. And you can't argue against it without looking foolish. And then when people have left, he's, he's found the replacements instantly. He loses Devitt. He takes a chance on AJ Styles. He loses AJ Styles. He's got Kenny Omega waiting in the wings. Just fucking around as a junior for a year, waiting for the opportunity to move him up. And when the opportunity came, the push couldn't have been more perfect. Couldn't have been more perfect. Nakamura and Ibushi leave. Naito's ready to step right in and sell out Sumo Hall. But hey, you can rip the guy all you want. You're the one who looks silly. I know it's trendy, but you all look very silly. And Shibata will be next. Shibata will be next. Man, wasn't expecting to do that this week. But I mean, geez. And I mean, you know what's coming. You know. Sonata will go four and five in the G1, and everyone will say that Gato doesn't know what he's doing. And then a year from now, when Sonata gets a big push or something, a year or two years from now, whatever, and becomes an enormous star, you know, and, and, and he won't get any credit for that. People are silly. I mean, they just don't look at facts. So we had a couple prelims to kick off the show. Bad Luck Folly and Yujiro beat Ryusuke Taguchi and Juice Robinson. This was basically a squash, which was exactly what it should have been. Bad Luck Folly is not a guy who should go 50-50 against prelim guys like Taguchi and Juice Robinson. And he didn't. He just went in there. He beat the shit out of Juice Robinson. Uh, Juice Robinson kicked out of the grenade, showed a little bit of heart, and then Folly put him away with the Bad Luck Fall. It was a very fast match. Um, and Fale looked dominant, and that was important for things that happened later on. Yuji Nagata, Satoshi Kojima, and Jushin Liger defeated Toru Yano, Yoshihashi, and Kazushi Sakuraba. Look, this was a bunch of guys who, di- who just didn't have a program for this show. Okay, But you knew the Nagata side was going to win because they're preparing Nagata for that title match against Shibata. So, you know, he, he will be the third New Japan dad to take a crack at Shibata's Never title. Kojima came up short on a house show. Uh, Tenzan came up short on this show. And Nagata will be the third and final guy to get a crack at Shibata later on. Um, uh, on uh, I think it's, it's, it's either Hinokuni is it, or the Dantaku show. It's the Hino, Wrestling Hinokuni show, I believe. Or is it the Dantaku show? It's the Hinokuni show. So that's why they, uh, the New Japan dads, along with Liger, won this match here. Yano, Yoshihashi, and Sakuraba, they got nothing going on right now, so there was no problem beating those guys. Hiroki Goto and Tomohiro Ishii defeated Bushi and Evil. This was a hell of a match. This was a hell of a match. It was worked at a hellacious pace. You know, this is what separates New Japan from a lot of companies. You get a match like this, a lower mid-card match, 
And and these guys just worked their ass off. It was hard hitting and it was a hell of a match. And this really was the true start of the card. This this was your your indication that the prelims were over. This was a very good match. Goto and Ishii won, of course, because Bushi was the only junior in the match. It was very obvious that he was going to take the fall. Goto and Evil had a pull apart. That will lead to a singles match. And we're going to talk about what's coming up after I go through the rest of this card. IWGP Junior Tag Team Titles. Rapongi Vice are your new champions. They defeated Seidel and Ricochet. The important thing to focus on here. Okay. Ricochet took the fall. He took the fall. Which obviously we know Ricochet is not long for this company. Ricochet has a WWE deal in his back pocket. He also has a Lucha Underground deal in his back pocket. And supposedly he's weighing his options. I was told that he's WWE bound. But he does now have an enticing offer from Lucha Underground on the table, which will allow him to work in Japan and work indies. We'll see what he's going to do. If I were Ricochet, I'd go to WWE. But, but, you know, I don't know what's best for him and his family. But he took the pin here. New Japan's protecting themselves in case he does take the WWE offer. But the big key here is Matt Seidel kicked out of Trent Beretta's Dude Buster earlier in the match. The Dude Buster, which was beating everybody on the tour. Every match Rapongi Vice was winning, whether they were straight tags or eight-man tags or six-man tags, they were usually winning with Trent Beretta hitting someone with the Dude Buster and putting them away. They, were, they have worked very hard to get that move over. Seidel kicked out of it. That was a very strong statement because he's going to be with the company moving forward. And if Ricochet does leave, they're going to find him a new partner. So they wanted to keep him strong. Ricochet got hit with the Dude Buster a few minutes later. The Dude Buster aided by the drop kick by Romero. And he took the pinfall. He will be in best of the Super Juniors. He's already booked for that. I don't know about the Super J-Cup. I don't know anything beyond that. I can tell you I also had an independent promoter text message me, and he was interested in booking Ricochet for later this summer. He was told directly from Ricochet's people, if you want to book Ricochet, you better book him, you better book him soon, and you better book him within the next month and a half. So it's long-term Ricochet is done taking bookings beyond a certain date. I don't know what that date is, but very clearly he's got something cooking, and he's going to take one of those two offers. And it looks to me, and I have been told, that it's going to be the WWE offer. But, you know, who knows? He could change his mind and he hasn't signed anything yet. But New Japan, clearly with the booking of this match, thinks that he will not be long for New Japan. He also has a very odd Dragon Gate booking coming up, which is completely out of left field, which many people suspect is going to be sort of a Dragon Gate farewell show, sort of like they did with Yuha Nation. Because why else would they randomly book Ricochet? He's been a New Japan guy for the longest time. So... Something's cooking with Ricochet. I believe he's heading to WWE. Rapongi Vice your new junior heavyweight tag team champions. And this was an excellent match. I haven't been the biggest Rapongi Vice supporter, but I thought this was a four-star match. It was a really good match. Kushida versus Will Ospreay. We haven't talked about young Will. We will later on in the show when we talk about WrestleMania weekend, but he had his fourth match of the year caliber match in a week. This time in Japan against Kushida. This was a tremendous match. And Osprey was so impressive here with his selling. The one thing that has been a legitimate knock on him has been his selling. But his selling was exceptional 
in this match as Kushida worked over the arm as he desperately worked towards the hoverboard lock. He controlled the majority of the match and everyone thought Will Ospreay was going to win the title here. I was one of the people who thought that as well. But, but, Kushida won the match. He worked over the arm the whole way through. Ospreay did a tremendous job selling the arm the whole way through. Kushida eventually locked on the hoverboard lock. He got the win clean as a sheet in the middle. He beat Ospreay. And and, and it was a big... This was a big win for Kushida because a lot of people thought... That his, that he, you know, finally with his first true run with the title, they were going to cut him off right at the legs as they got a hold of Ospreay. But that did not happen, and he won the match. And then he was challenged by Jushin Liger, which everyone is excited about because they've had great singles matches in the past, particularly at the best of the Super Juniors last year. They had a great match. Might have been the year before. Was it last year or the year before? But they had a great match at best of the Super Juniors during, uh, you know, the pool play. Um, uh, during block, you know, block match, a regular block match for the best super juniors, and they're gonna have a great match again. It's not often that Liger gets to be in a big match these days, but we all know he can still go. He still has uh, a couple of tremendous matches each year when given a chance, usually around best of super juniors time, and this will sort of be a symbolic passing of the torch sort of match when Kushida beats Liger. And uh, we'll talk more about that uh, when we talk about the cards coming up. But a tremendous match against Ospreay, a big win for him. And by beating Ospreay and then by beating Liger, that's really going to help cement Kushida's reign as, as junior champion with, with two huge wins like that. So things are looking good for Kushida. One spot Will Ospreay here did in this match blew me away. He does a move where he does a backhand spring against the ropes. Okay, it's something he does in nearly every match. Well, Kushida had been working over his arm the entire match. And Ospreay went for that backhand spring off the ropes. And he collapsed because he was selling the arm damage. He could not complete. You can't complete a handspring without your hands, without your arm. And he collapsed. Or can you? Because moments later, Ospreay adjusted and completed the handspring without his hands. Think about that. He completed a backhand spring with no hands. He leapt into the air and did it without his arms. I mean, this guy is amazing. And I'm not going to, you know, we're going to talk a lot about him later on. But I just wanted to make sure people, when you, if you haven't seen this match yet, actually, look at my review on Voices of Wrestling. We've got the, the GIF up of him performing the handspring with no arms. The great Senor Lariato provided that gym. It's just, it's just, and that just uh, speaks to the level of, uh, of uh, intricate selling that Osprey did in this match. I mean, this was just, and the thing about Osprey is this was a completely different kind of match than he had uh, with the three great singles matches he had over WrestleMania weekend that we're going to talk about later. Never open weight six man championship. We've got new champions there as well. Tanahashi, Elgin, and Yoshitatsu defeated the Elite. Look. This was the right finish. There was only two possible finishes for this match that would have been acceptable. New champions or Kenny Omega beating Yoshitatsu with the Styles Clash. Because, of course, Yoshitatsu was injured via the Styles Clash and broke his neck and missed well over a year of action because of it. Now, they did tease the Styles Clash all match long, which, you know, the crowd bought into and they gasped. That move is still super over. But the baby faces did prevail. Good moment for Tatsu winning the title. 
coming back from his injury. First match back. He's now a champion. He's with his former tag team partner uh, from back before he left for WWE when he was tag team partners with Tanahashi and Tanahashi's new partner in Elgin. A good championship win here for Elgin. These never open weight six-man titles are so much fun. I mean, they're defended constantly. Yes, they change hands a lot, but so what? It's like the sixth or seventh title in the pecking order. It doesn't have to be important. That's something that I'm so sick of. Oh, the titles don't mean anything. Well, it's the fucking seventh most important title. Who cares? It doesn't have to mean something. It can just be something on the show to add a little juice to a match. Not every title has to be protected like it's the fucking NWA World Heavyweight title in 1972. Okay? These are nice little titles that serve a very good purpose on these shows. It's played out exactly how me and Rich said it would. And that these are fun titles that anyone could win at any time and they add a ton of juice to the shows. And they're going to be defended twice more on the next tour. I love these titles and I can't get enough of them. I cannot get enough of these titles or the title matches for these. It's so much fun. A ton of fun. And we've got new champions. Cody Hall got injured. Matt Jackson did a uh, flip dive, flippity-doo off of the balcony. And Cody Hall was one of the guys catching him and he kind of landed badly on his neck. Jackson landed on Cody Hall's neck badly. And Hall wasn't moving. And it was scary for a few minutes. And they stretched him out of there and took him to a hospital. But he's okay. No concussion. No broken bones. Sort of a precautionary thing. So Cody Hall's okay. So that's good news. But it was very scary for a few minutes there. We, you know, It looked like he was uh, seriously hurt. Now in that match, Michael Elgin scored the pin. Which I kind of thought Yoshitatsu should have scored the pin. With him coming back and coming back from the injury and all that. But... It ended up making sense because Elgin's going to be the next challenger for Kenny Omega's um, Intercontinental title. And then out of nowhere, Bad Luck Fale attacked Hiroshi Tanahashi to set up another singles match between those two. Which, I mean, those guys have such great chemistry together. That's going to be another great match. They always were. Hiroshi Tanahashi, he must really, really like Bad Luck Fale. Because he lets this guy beat the living shit out of him when these guys have singles matches. I mean, Fale just stiffs the hell out of Tanahashi in these singles matches. And Tanahashi's a guy who's beat up. And he's pushing 40, and he's got a bad back. And, you know, and, and Fale just fucking destroys this guy when they face each other. He, he must really like Fale. So two singles matches came out of this as well. And I'll tell you, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Never open weight title. Shibata versus Tenzan. Step number two as, as Shibata goes through the three New Japan dads. I should mention before, as I was saying, how a lot of the people or just about every person in New Japan who has gotten a, uh, a push this year, uh, how their pushes were already in the cards. Okay? I did fail to bring up the New Japan dads. And when I talk about the New Japan dads, I'm talking about Yuji Nagata, Satoshi Kojima, and Hiroshi Tenzan, who haven't been pushed for years. That entire generation has sort of been phased down, along with Minabu Nakanishi. Um, But if you want to look, aside from Shibata, who I talked about earlier, if you want to look at people who are being pushed in New Japan, I believe, as a direct result of people leaving, it's the New Japan dads. I do not think 
that Nagata, Kojima, and Tenzan would be getting the push that they're getting, the never title level push, as never title challengers without the defections. Those are three guys I think you can definitively point to as guys who are getting a push uh, due to you know a little bit of less with the roster depth issues. I mean, those I, I think that is an example you can you can point to because Gato had done nothing with these guys and had completely phased them out. Uh, you know, b- before the defections. So, just to be fair, I forgot to bring those guys up earlier, and I meant to. I think those are three guys that you can point to who have been the beneficiaries of some of the talent leaving. But Shibata Tenzon, look, I mean, look, Tenzon's a guy who looks old, he looks slow, he looks like he's going to fall apart at any moment, but when he's put in a position to have a big match, whether it's, you know, the two or three times a year during G1 where he steps up and has a big-time match, or, or a situation like this, people knew that he was going to have a good match coming into this. People who, the, the smart fans knew. Smart New Japan fans who pay attention knew that Tenzan was going to deliver in this spot, and he delivered. This was an excellent match, and it was a definitive win for Shibata. He put him away with the PK, center of the ring. He bowed to him after the match. Shibata bowed to the fallen Tenzan. And then just as the crowd was beginning to applaud Shibata for showing some sportsmanship, he attacked Yuji Nagata, who was tending to his buddy Tenzan. And then they had their pull apart. Okay, so this was a definitive win for Shibata coming off the great match against Kojima, which a lot of people are calling a match of the year contender. Then he gets the definitive win over Tenzan. The feud will peak within the Gata match, which is coming up. That's where it'll peak. Nagata's the uh, the big gun of the New Japan dads. And that's the match that's coming up. IWGP Tag Team title semi-main event of the show, the Gorillas of uh, Destiny against Great Bash Heel. We have new champions once again. Tama Tonga. He won the Never Open Way Trios titles earlier this year. Now he's a tag team champion with his brother, uh, Tangaloa. Or is it Tangaroa? Or is it Tangaroa? Or is it Tangaloa? Nobody knows this guy's name. People are telling me it's Tangaloa because that's some Tongan god of some sort. The New Japan website says Tangaroa. I, look, I don't know the dude's name. All I know is he's the former Camacho, and all I know is he stinks. And this was not a good match. The fact of the matter is, Tangaloa, Tangaroa, Camacho, Micah, whatever you want to call him, this guy is not up to the working standard of New Japan. He is the prime definition of just a guy. He's a jag. He is a fucking jag. And he showed that here. I mean, he did nothing to stand out in this match. I, I, I talked about this. I wrote about this. I was concerned that he wasn't ready for this spot. I was concerned that Tamatanga would not be good enough to carry him as the better half of the team and the senior member of the team. And I was right. This was not a good match. This was not a good match. Do you know how dry you have to be to have a non-compelling heat spot with Tomoaki Hanma. I mean, Tomoaki Hanma 
in, in, look, their styles are different, but he's the modern-day Ricky Morton. I mean, he really is. Nobody, you know, took a compelling beating the way Ricky Morton did in the 80s. Nobody takes a beating these days like Hanma does or garners sympathy for taking a beating the way that Hanma does. And there was a heat segment in this match on, on, on Hanma that just, you know, he just, it, look, if you can't, look, if you can't get over beating up Hanma, you're not going to get, you're not going to get over beating up anybody. I mean, you're beating up Hanma in, in Sumo Hall in Tokyo and nobody cares. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, Hanma has uh, three and a half star matches when he rolls out of bed. I mean, this was a this was ter- this is a two star match. How do you have a two star match in a semi main event and a sold out sumo hall against Tomoaki Hanma? How do you do that? I'll tell you how you do it. When you're Camacho, that's how. The semi main event of a New Japan show in sumo hall is not a place for a WWE performance center creator wrestler, which is what Camacho is. That's not the place for that. He's not ready for this spot. He's not good enough. He came off that performance center assembly line. He's a reverse chin lock dude. Okay? He can't work at this level. He has no charisma. And look, I got no problem bringing Camacho into this company. But you can't push him this hard right off the bat. His brother is 10 times the worker that he is, and it took him years. It took him five years to get a push. So let's circle back to the beginning of this segment. You want to know who was the beneficiary of people leaving New Japan? Ironically, it was fucking Camacho. It wasn't Naito or Omega or Tamata. It was Camacho. I mean, jeez. I have no problem bringing the guy in. Put him in the Juice Robinson spot. Let him work his way up the card. Juice is getting better and better right before our eyes. Juice was a disaster when he showed up. Just like this guy was a disaster in this match. And Juice is getting consistently better, working on the undercards, going to the dojo every day, working with the talented young lions, working with the talented veterans on the undercard. You put Camacho right into this spot. That guy was never good. I knew this was going to flop. He stunk in WWE. He was even worse in TNA. He never did anything above a star and three quarters in TNA. And he's in the semi-main event of a New Japan show in a sold-out sumo hall, their second or third biggest show of the year? Are you kidding me? How did you think it was going to turn out? He wasn't ready for this spot. It was unfair to the guy. He should be the Bullet Club jobber right now. Him and Cody Hall. Neck and neck. No pun intended to Hall's injury. I'm not making light of that. Before anyone starts in on me. It's a phrase. But I mean, geez, that's where he belongs. He doesn't belong. as a, He's a fucking champion. His first match in. Are you kidding me? 
And let me tell you something. I'm not letting Tom Matango off the hook here. I was one of the people screaming for this guy to get pushed, and he has not delivered. Not in the least. Not in the never open weight six man matches, the title win, the title loss. Not in the New Japan Cup, where he had opportunities in singles matches, big time singles matches to deliver, and he did not deliver. And not here in the semi main event of Invasion Attack in the biggest match of his life. Okay? He was barely better than his brother. There's just something missing from this guy since he's gotten the push. I don't know if he can't handle the pressure. I don't know if he's not, if he's just choking under the spotlight. I don't know what it is, but all of the pop and sizzle he had in his work is gone. What happened to this guy? What happened to it? It might just be a case where Tamatanga is one of those dudes who's just better as an enhancement guy. Maybe his lot, look, we say it all the time on this show. The world needs ditch diggers too. And maybe Tamatanga's a ditch digger. Maybe his lot in New Japan is to take really cool looking bumps and put people over. Because he looked great doing that. And look, it's only been about four months. Okay? That's nothing. A year from now, he might be one of the best dudes on the roster. Who knows? And it might all just click for the guy. It's way too soon to write him off. But this Tamatanga thing, it has not worked out. It has not worked out. And this is a company where you need to have good matches. I mean, that's important. Excuse me, I had to drink, take a drink of water. So yeah, very disappointing match. Camacho's just not ready for this spot. And I think that uh, it was blatantly obvious. And then we already talked about Naito beating Okada for the title. So we got two big shows coming up. We got Wrestling Hinokuni on 429, and then we have Wrestling Dantaku on 5-3. And the booking on Invasion Attack built to no less than nine matches for these two shows. I mean, the booking on Invasion Attack was spectacular. The right people won most of the matches, and it and 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 tons of matches were built for the Hinokuni and Dantaku shows. I mean, just great booking. It was an exciting show, top to bottom. We got a bunch of new champions. I think four titles change hands. We got a bunch of new directions. We got a bunch of continued directions. Everything feels fresh. Everything feels exciting. And the booking by, you know, supposedly the worst booker in the world was just tremendous here. And let's talk about these two shows. Wrestling Hinokuni on the 29th is the first one. Uh, this will be headlined by Kenny Omega versus Michael Elgin. So Kenny Omega gets his second New Japan singles main event after successfully headlining against Hiroshi Tanahashi on the smaller of the two new beginning shows. Now look, that was against Tanahashi and it was in, you know, the smaller of the two buildings for New Beginning. little test run for Omega. And again, this will not be a giant building 
for wrestling Hinokuni, Kumamoto, Japan. What's another headline spot? We'll see how he does. Now again, he's got good support here. In fact, he has excellent support, and this show should sell out. You've got Tanahashi against Bad Luck Fale. Once again, Fale attacked Tanahashi after Tanahashi uh, won the never uh, openweight trios titles. Both of those matches, in fact, were set up in that never openweight match. Elgin challenged Omega in the post-match after taking his title. Third from the top is a match we talked about. Shibata defends the never title against Yuji Nagata. So, I mean, Omega has plenty of support here. This show should sell out. If this show doesn't sell out or come very close to selling out, I think that's a, a very bad sign. New Japan... The rank-and-file house shows are down. The rank-and-file house shows are down. Cork and Hall, which has been booked a little bit stronger this year after being booked terribly last year, has been a little bit down. The big shows have done well. The New Beginning shows did well, and Invasion Attack, obviously, was a very good sign selling out. It's the rank-and-file house shows that are down. This show here with all of this, with those top three matches, should do very well. And it's, it's actually even deeper than that. Osprey, Goto, Okada, and Ishii will face Los Ingobernoles uh, di Japan. Bushi, Evil, Sonata, and Naito. Eight-man tag. Okada is fourth from the top. Naito, the IWGP Heavyweight Champion, is fourth from the top. Tell me again how this company was doomed when AJ Styles and Nakamura left because Gato uh, didn't know how to create stars and elevate people. Please, tell me more. I want to hear more about that. When you're IWGP Heavyweight Champion and your company ace are fourth from the top on wrestling Hinokuni. Please, indulge me. So silly. Beretta and Romero, Rapongi Vice, defend the junior titles for the first time. Seidel and Ricochet get a rematch. Interesting that they're giving them a rematch. You know, Ricochet sticking around for best of super juniors. Maybe they didn't know that at the time of the title change. I'm sure that they did, though. Will they beat Ricochet here again? Will he do another job? Interesting. Of course, this is the junior tag title, so it would shock no one if Seidel and Ricochet simply won them back. And then there's four more prelim matches on the show as well. Yoshitatsu teams with Great Bash Heel. They take on Yujiro and the new tag team champions, the uh, Tonga Brothers. Taguchi and Kushida against Tiger Mask and Liger. Liger, of course, will face Kushida a few nights later on Dantaku. This match will be a prelude to that. Looks like Tiger Mask will take the fall there. I guess, you know, theoretically, I guess Liger could beat Taguchi. It would surprise me, though. I think Kushida will hover will uh, hoverboard lock Tiger Mask in that match. Juice Robinson and Manabu Nakanishi against Yoshihashi and Sakuraba. 
and there will be a Jay White David Finley opener. Um, that is your wrestling Hinokuni show on 429, and oh boy, is it loaded! It is it is five matches deep of important, meaningful matches. And then on May 3rd, four or five nights later or whatever it is, is Wrestling Dantaku. That is headlined by Tetsuya Naito, his first title defense against Tomohiro Ishii. Second from the top, semi-main event, Kazuchika Okada against Sonata. And how awesome does that sound? I cannot wait for that match. This is such a big match for Sonata. Biggest match of Sonata's life. First singles match in the company. He's taken on Okada. They've they've put him... This is why I'm saying Sonata's going to be a player. They put him right in a feud with Okada. I mean, come on. Goto against Evil. Kushida defends against Liger. Fifth from the top tag team titles, Hanma and Makabe get their rematch against the Tonga brothers. Big match for the Tonga brothers. The Gorillas of Destiny. They got to deliver here. After that shit match at Invasion Attack, it's, it's an important match for them. Tama Tonga, man, come on. He's got to prove the people who want him push, me among them. He's got to start proving us right. And then there's four prelim matches, much like the other show. Uh, this one features, well, actually, you know, uh, I'm sorry. There, there's another a title match on this. Well, it's not a title match yet, but Yoshitatsu, Tanahashi, and Elgin are facing the elite in an invasion attack rematch. In the fourth match on the show. The fourth match on the show. There's five matches ahead of the of a Hiroshi Tanahashi title match. Where the Intercontinental Champion is on the opposite side. But remember, this company had no depth. And Gato does not know how to elevate stars. Remember. That's the narrative. This will be a title match. Here's what's going on with that. In Corican Hall on the 23rd, Road to Wrestling Duntaku, Yoshitatsu, Tanahashi, and Michael Elgin defend. They have their first defense of the never openweight trios titles against Yujiro, Bad Luck Fale, and Kenny Omega. That's the semi-main event of the Cork and Hall show on the 23rd. It looks to me like they will successfully defend and and probably pin Yujiro. And then the match on May 3rd at Duntaku will then be become a title a title match against the Elite. So I think Tatsu, Tanahashi, and Elgin will defeat the Bullet Club team in Korokin, and then they'll defend against the Elite on Duntaku. But they can't tell you that's a title match yet until the result of the match in Korokin Hall. New Japan, you know, they protect kayfabe in that way. They're not going to tell you that's a title match and tip their hand on the Korokin Hall match. 
So this Dantaku show in Fukuoka is loaded. It's six matches deep with title matches and significant singles matches. A lot of these are great shows. This this Hinokuni and Dantaku shows. These two shows are great shows. And traditionally, these are not great shows. These are these are not bigger uh, among the bigger uh, big shows that New Japan does. But God, these shows are stacked. And then there's some prelims. Jay White and Shibata take on Nakanishi and Nagata. David Finley, Taguchi, Tiger Mask, Matt Seidel, and Ricochet face Rapongi Vice, Will Ospreay, Yoshihashi, and Sakuraba in a 10-man tag. I'll tell you, it's not going to get a ton of time, but that'll be one hell of a 10-man tag. And then the opener is Juice Robinson and Captain New Japan against Yujiro and Bad Luck Folly. You know, I went a little longer than I thought I was going to go on the New Japan stuff, but man, I started to get fired up when I started talking about Gato because... uh, Man, he, he really just takes an unnecessary beating. So, um, you know, what can I say, man? Sometimes I get fired up. That's why people listen to the show. No one gets fired up like I did. This is why I'm the most compelling man in the wrestling media, because I get fired up. I'll tell you who else is fired up. Octagon is fired up. In what I believe to be a woefully underreported story going on down in Mexico. Octagon has basically gone insane. And I don't know if you guys saw this, but there's a video floating around. It's made its rounds on various wrestling message boards. I believe it's on Octagon's Facebook page, although it may have been taken down by now. But here's what's going on with Octagon and Octagon Jr. Octagon Jr., of course, is the former Flamita. Now, Flamita is a kid... And I call him a kid because I, I think he's like 20 years old. Um, I, you know, he's no older than 21, but I think he's like 20 years old. He first made a name for himself in the DTU promotion, which is an indie promotion in Mexico, which features a bunch of uh, literal literal children. I mean, a, a lot of them are 14, 15 years old. Um, it's a crazy promotion full of just wacky flying and a mixture of old school garbage style ECW, you know, table breaking, barbed wire, fire, um, you know, mixed with crazy high flying, absolutely no psychology. It was my guilty pleasure for a while, a couple of years ago when guys like uh, Flamita and Drastic Boy were making a name for themselves and they would bring in people like A.R. Fox and and uh, Davy Richards, they you know, you know, would do shots down there, and Rich Swan, I believe, I believe, I I recall doing some DTU shots, and um, Joe Leiter, who most Lucha fans cannot stand, but I have a, uh, he's another guilty pleasure of mine. Joe Leiter, I think, is an absolute lunatic, and um, you know, you know, he's a guy who would who would go to DTU and work with these teenagers and just set himself on fire and go through tables and put himself through glass and just do crazy Joe Leiter things. At any rate, Flamita eventually caught on with Dragon Gate and became an international star. He had a long Brave Gate run all at the age of 19 and was very successful in Dragon Gate. 
before catching the attention of AAA back in his home country. Now, AAA had originally given the Octagon Jr. gimmick to the wrestler now known as Callisto, who at the time was known as Samurai Del Sol on the independent scene. He was Chicago, I believe a Chicago-based luchador who, of course, uh, got his big break with WWN Live and Dragon Gate USA slash Evolve at the time and his feud with El Generico is really what solidified him on the map before catching on with WWE and, of course, now the United States champion as Callisto. He was the original Octagon Jr., but I believe he only lasted one or two matches and then that was that. Well, AAA brought in Flamita as Fireball originally and then decided to give him the Octagon Jr. gimmick. In fact, this past uh, uh, weekend at, at, at the uh, in Dallas on the WrestleCon show, Fireball was originally booked, but at the insistence of AAA, he ended up working the show as Octagon Jr. So he's gone from Flamita to Fireball to Octagon Jr. Well, the original Octagon, who... Some of you may remember from the formative days of the AAA promotion in the early 90s as one of the original AAA stars has taken exception to the idea that AAA has given the Octagon Jr. gimmick to someone who is not related to him or has been handpicked by him. Now, the fact of the matter is he, he has no legal leg to stand on here. AAA owns the gimmick. They own the Octagon gimmick. In fact, the way it was explained to me is Antonio Pena, the late Antonio Pena, uh, the AAA founder, he he originally came up with the Octagon gimmick even before AAA existed in the late 80s and gave it to that wrestler. And, and, and Antonio Pena really was ahead of the curve in terms of uh, controlling the rights to names and gimmicks. Even before Vince McMahon jumped on that bandwagon, Antonio Pena was a forerunner in that in Mexico. And in fact, uh, the most um, prominent example of that is La Parca. The, the man who works as La Parca in AAA today, as a lot of you listening may know, but some of you may not, is not the man who you may remember from WCW or from AAA in the 90s, that man now works as L.A. Park. That's the original La Parca. Well, not the original, original La Parca. There was a La Parca in the 70s, but that that's neither here nor there. This is going to get really confusing if I start breaking down the lineage of all the La Parcas because there's a Super Parca, and here's what you need to know. The chair-swinging dude with all of the charisma from WCW and from the early days of AAA is now known as L.A. Park. And he's pushing 50. He may be in his 50s by now. And he's still a tremendous wrestler and now works a brawling style. And uh, and, and he's the original LaBarga. But because of all the friction he's had with AAA over the years, they own the gimmick. 
He is not allowed to work as Laparca. AAA has their own Laparca now. He's a far inferior version in every way to the original Laparca, who now works as L.A. Park. If you're still with me and you're not completely confused, long story short, Antonio Pena and AAA were a little bit ahead of the game in terms of uh, copyrights and uh, owning gimmicks and things of that nature. And Octagon is one of the gimmicks that AAA still retains the rights to. Now, Octagon hasn't been a AAA wrestler for some time, but the way it was explained to me was that since he's working smaller indie shows and not really, he's not really a significant draw anymore. And, um, you know, the elite promotion tried to book him as a top guy for a while and he flopped badly. And AAA is kind of like, they've allowed him to continue working under the name because he's been pretty much a non-entity at this point in his career. He's a washed up old man. But they they own the name and the gimmick. Now, what Octagon has been doing is he's been carrying around these supposed official documents, which he claims is proof that he owns the rights to the gimmick. The problem with that is when people in the press or people ask to see the documents, he's very protective of those documents. The bottom line is he's full of shit. AAA owns the gimmick. So here's what happened. Octagon Jr. was doing an autograph signing or an appearance or whatever at a restaurant. And he was doing it um, not for AAA, but for the Caralucha promotion, which is an independent promotion in Mexico. One of the larger ones, actually. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's the promotion where the uh, Pero Aguayo Jr. tragedy took place. So, you know, they book bigger names and they're, they're a pretty big promotion. And... Um, Octagon Jr. was was doing them a favor and making an appearance for them in a restaurant because they had taken care of him over the years by booking him and whatnot. And Octagon caught wind of that, shows up at the restaurant, and this is the video that's floating around that I alluded to earlier before I went into the backstory. Um, you know, Octagon uh, caught wind of that, shows up with uh, armed security. Now, there are some conflicting reports. From what I understand, uh, these men, without question, um, were armed. So, Octagon showed up with men and guns. And because this was not a AAA sanctioned signing or whatnot, Octagon Jr. had no security. He was just basically, you know, at a gimmick table on his own. Octagon walks in with basically a small army and his uh, legal documents claiming he owns the name and then he's browbeating Octagon Jr. and running him down and telling him he's wrong for working the gimmick. And then he snatches off his mask. Octagon snatches off Octagon Jr.'s mask. And he's got people filming this because this was, you know, he was grandstanding. So here's what's going on with all this. Initially, when AAA rolled out the Octagon Jr. gimmick for the second time with Flamita, a lot of the old school wrestlers, a lot of the press, they had some sympathy for Octagon because while AAA is well within their legal rights to 
carry on with the Octagon gimmick in any way they see fit. It's still one of those deals where it's, you know, it's kind of a lack of respect or whatnot. But once he confronted the kid and once he tore the mask off of his head, which is an enormous no-no, you just don't do that. Uh, The way it's been explained to me by multiple people, because I did my due diligence here and I spoke to a lot of people, Octagon lost any sympathy he had because that's just an enormous no-no to remove a mask from a, from a, from another wrestler. I mean, it's just the, the the ultimate in disrespect and a total dick move compounded by the fact that he showed up with armed security. Armed. And the way it was explained to me as well is Flamita is a very, you know, he's a kid, first of all. He's very young. He's very religious. He's very laid back. He has a reputation of just being a quiet, uh, keep to himself, just a nice guy. In other words, he's. it was described to me that he's the kind of person who would never fight back. And Octagon knows this. He's not a, you know, he's, he was described as he's not a confrontational person. He's not a fighter. You know, he was just there doing his job. And he was basically, um, you know, confronted. And then, you know, he, he, if you watch the video, you can see him. He's kind of just nodding his head as Octagon is running him down. He, he just wants the situation to end. He's not arguing. He's not fighting back. He's just calmly sitting. And then the mask is snatched off of his head. And by all accounts, he's the nicest guy. And even when people had sympathy for Octagon, no one was blaming Octagon Jr. He was just someone hired by his, doing what he's told by his bosses, performing this gimmick. But now everyone has turned on Octagon because they they feel like he was completely out of line. I just mentioned L.A. Park. He put out a video on his, uh, I think it was either his Facebook page or Twitter or something, uh, uh, condemning Octagon for what he did. Um, so it's gotten very ugly. AAA has responded by leaking stories to the press. There's a lot of dirt, from what I'm told, that's going to come out on Octagon, and it's going to get ugly, the first of which has uh, started to trickle out. Um, AAA has leaked that Octagon had you know, fathered children outside of his marriage, with some uh, female wrestlers. There was a set of twins that he had always denied were his, and now that's been leaked by AAA, and there's supposedly some other very damaging and incriminating stories about to come out now that this situation has gotten ugly. And Octagon is also now claiming, out of the blue, that he has a son, and that he is giving the Octagon Jr. gimmick to this supposed son. Now, no one is buying this. And the latest word going around is that uh, this is just an independent wrestler who Octagon is paying to do his bidding and perform the Octagon Jr. gimmick. This is all just... just a, This story is insane. I mean, this is, this is a crazy story of what's going on down there with this. Now, from what I'm told and what I haven't seen reported anywhere is... Long before this this uh, restaurant confrontation took place, 
Octagon had already threatened Octagon Jr., and he had people threaten him physically. He was threatened with violence before this confrontation. So Flamita knew this was coming. And, you know, it's just an ugly, ugly situation. And there's just no way to side with Octagon here. There just isn't. I mean, this is an old, washed-up wrestler who, regardless of whether it's the right thing to do for AAA, no matter where you stand ethically on it in terms of how they control the gimmicks and um, dole them out as they see fit, legally, the man has no leg to stand on. AAA owns the gimmick. So, So legally, he has no recourse here. Now... One person told me that because he pulled this shit, AAA is going to step on the throat legally and they're probably going to give him a hard time in terms of performing under the name Octagon. He has a clothing line. He's got t-shirts with the imagery and they really hadn't bothered with him because he wasn't a major factor on the scene. But now that he's pulled this uh, with one of their talents and now that he you know ripped the mask off publicly, um, they're going to come at him hard. And, you know, leaking all of the negative stories that have remained under the covers for all these years is just the beginning. They're also going to put the legal pressure on him in terms of using the name. So he, he could be shooting himself in the foot here. Because now he might have to go through a name change himself. If AAA does indeed own the gimmick, which most people agree that they do. Just a completely and totally wild situation going on with that. And I I think it's uh, uh, really been an underreported story and something that I don't think enough people are talking about. And I I don't think the story is even close to being over. And from what I understand, Octagon knows full well the personality of Flamita. He knew he could get away with something like this. He knew Flamita was not some kind of street fighter or a person who was going to fight back or anything like that. And um, now it's going to get very dirty between AAA and Octagon. And, and, and you know, as well it should. I mean, you know, AAA should go after this guy, in my opinion. They should go after him legally and, and you know, prevent him from making money off of the name now. Especially since they had been so lenient about it over the years by allowing him to go out and make money using the name. So he'll probably have to go through a slight gimmick adjustment the way that L.A. Park did. But he he lost all of his sympathy really within uh, the community of wrestlers when he pulled that mask off. I mean, that was just a dirty move. And if you go and watch the video, it, it, it's just so cowardly the way he does it too. He, he You know, he waits for... Octagon Jr. to be looking the other way and he he snatches the mask right off of his head. It's just a sneaky move. And and I was also told for anyone who might think that this is some kind of work and maybe that this, you know, AAA is behind this and they're building to a match, absolutely, positively not the case. I was told that there this is not how... this. This would be frowned upon big t- This is not how you build a match. You don't build a match by snatching a mask off someone's face in a public setting like that, like in a work shoot. It just wouldn't happen that way. In fact, one person told me that because of the dynamics involved here, Octagon wouldn't even think of stepping in the ring with Flamita. 
I guess just for pride purposes or uh, that would be admitting defeat or for whatever reason, uh, the, the person told me that Octagon would never even think of wrestling Flamita. So now look, this is pro wrestling and, you know, money talks and all that. But I look, I don't get the sense at all that this is any kind of work or that Octagon even is even attempting, you know, you could even say, well, maybe Octagon's shooting an angle here or trying to shoot an angle on his own and, and, and you know, then maybe AAA or Octagon Jr. will want to do business. I, I don't think that's even the case from Octagon's side. I think Octagon is just a crazy old man who feels like he's in the right, even though he isn't, and is handling this in, in, in totally the wrong way. Octagon's not the only wrestler who's handling... You know, he's not the only wrestler who's handled things poorly this week. As Austin Aries has gotten himself in some trouble. What a dope this guy is. Great wrestler, but an absolute dope. You know, he's... he's Here's the thing. And, and this is... I know that there are some wrestlers who listen to this show. I, I know for a fact. Because they tell us they listen. And I'm not going to out them or anything like that. Or, but if you're a wrestler and you're listening to this show, or if you're, you know, a, another podcast host, a radio host, a, anyone with any sort of even Z-level celebrity name I'm going to give you a little bit of advice because I've had my share of online controversies to say the least I'll give you a little bit of advice when it comes to the Twitter if you vanity search okay if you vanity search you are asking for it do not vanity search your name if you are thin skinned And you can't help yourself but to respond. Just don't do it. What you don't know cannot hurt you. Leave it alone. Austin Aries is a vanity searcher. And to compound that issue, he responds when he sees things he doesn't like when he vanity searches his name. And that got him into some serious trouble this week when he tried to do the Kevin Steen gimmick and bury someone for saying something that he didn't like about him. And he called the person ugly. And oh boy, has it backfired. The person turned out to be a blogger, a wrestling blogger, who also happens to be transgender. Ari's followers piled on to this transgender person, making all sorts of inappropriate jokes and comments at their disposal, which looks very bad on Ari's because it it took him a few days to step in and tell people to cool it. But you know, I'm not a big fan of blaming the person for the behavior of their fans. I'm not a, you know, I, th- that's weird to me. It's really not Austin Aries' problem that his fans are pieces of shit. And it's, you know, and I, see, I don't think Austin Aries is being a, was being a bigot in this situation by calling this person ugly. Austin Aries was simply being an asshole. I think Austin Aries is guilty of being an asshole. 
for vanity searching. Look, if this person wanted Austin Aries to read their comment, they would have tagged him. If you tag, look, if you get tagged, it's fair game. If someone tags you and has something shitty to say, it's fair game to give it to them right back. But when you vanity search it, you're seeking it out. And they're not, it's, it's, they're not saying it to your face. They're saying it to their followers. They're talking amongst, it's the equivalent of talking amongst their friends. And you're seeking it out and you're asking for it if you vanity search. And you really can't respond because you, you, it's almost impossible to not come off badly when you respond to a vanity search. This person did not tag Austin Aries to say something bad about him. They, they, it was vanity searched. And he responded, I don't think he was being a bigot. It's not bigoted to call someone ugly. Just because they happen to be transgender, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's, it's being an asshole. Calling someone ugly is being an asshole. It's not being a bigot. Vanity searching and then calling someone ugly because you didn't like what they said, makes you a dick. Doesn't make you a bigot. All of the bigoted comments that came afterwards from Aries fans, I'm not real comfortable with blaming Aries for that. There's some people who disagree with that. And that's fine. I can see that point of view. I just don't happen to agree with it. But what Aries is doing now is not letting the situation die. Austin, let it go. Take the L and move on. He keeps subtweeting the person and subtweeting his critics and just, you know, making terrible jokes that aren't funny and just digging himself a bigger hole. Look, again, I've had my share of controversies over the years for things I've said on this show or things that I've tweeted out or whatever. And I understand, look, Nobody understands the need to self-righteously double down as much as I do because I've done my share of, self, of self-righteous doubling down, okay? And I've, I've, you know, kept things alive a little longer than I have should myself as well. But he's gone beyond that. What Austin Aries is doing now is he's tripling down. It's, he's doing the old suicidal triple down. It's getting to the point where he's the one that's keeping attention on this situation. He's the one that keeps fanning the flames every time they're about to burn out. And it may ultimately, this is the kind of thing where we could look back, it could cost him his job. He really is not thinking this through. I don't believe he was initially being a bigot. But if he keeps digging himself a hole and not letting this situation die... He's going to keep saying things that people construe as being bigoted. Leave it alone. Take the L and leave it alone, and people will eventually forget about it. Someone else will do something or say something stupid, and the attention will be on them at that point and off of you. But he keeps bringing the attention back onto himself. He will not let it die. He needs to just let it die. He's a very stubborn man. And he's a pretty smart guy 
But at the same time, he's 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 the way he's handling this, he's coming off very stupid. He, you know, it, it's he, he you know, and 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 with the company he's working for now, this is you know, this social media stuff will burn you. It will fucking burn you. Okay, and and when you work for that company, look no further than uh, than 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 Zahara or whatever the hell her name was, and and uh, Jessica Havoc when she had her tryout. When you get on the wrong side of certain people, they will dig and dig and dig, and he's going to he is going to poke the wrong beehive here, and it might be in his best interest to just delete his social media right now. People are going to dig until they find things, okay? And trust me, trust me, people can find things on almost anyone. Any there are People can find out-of-context tweets, out-of-context Facebook posts. I, you know, it, it's, listen, people have done it to me. And I'm nobody, okay? And, and I can't be fired because I own my own shit. But people have done it to me. I, you know, I'm not going to fire myself, but he's in a position where he could lose his job. People, you know, someone just lost their job within the last year for, for old shit that people dug up. Now, granted, you know, it's, it's, the situations were a little different, but I, you know, he, he really needs to pump the brakes here and just leave this situation. He just keeps antagonizing the situation. And, and he just keeps looking worse and worse. You know, it's like, even if you didn't think he was initially in the wrong, even if you think the people were coming at, it doesn't matter where you stood on the initial situation. Because again, I don't feel he was being bigoted in his initial comment. I just think he was being a dick. He was trying to do the Kevin, the Kevin Owens gimmick. Look, the fact of the matter is, look, if you know anything about comedy... Some comedian, you know, two comedians can do the same joke and one can pull it off and the other can't. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Uh, you know, Chris, you know, it's, uh, it's like Jim Gaffigan cannot do the same material that Chris Rock does. It just, and vice versa, it just doesn't work. Kevin Owens has a certain kind of charisma. Kevin Owens has a certain kind of personality where he can pull, pull off that Twitter gimmick and go after people who say things to him on Twitter and it just comes off funny and charming. Austin Aries tries to do the same thing, and he just comes off like a fucking dick. Look, that might not be fair, but that's just the way it is. And I don't think Austin Aries understands that. He can't pull off that Kevin Owens gimmick. And Kevin Owens is also smart enough to know which targets to pick. It's another big key here. Kevin Owens is not vanity searching to find these people. They're tagging him, number one. And if he did vanity search, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't go after a transgender person who might be a little more sensitive to someone coming after their looks than, than someone who is not transgendered. I mean, let's use our head here. And then he wouldn't double down and he certainly wouldn't triple down. The way Austin Aries is doing. I mean, this I, this guy is self-destructing in front of our eyes. He is self-destructing in front of our eyes. It took him how many years to get into this company? 
and he's self-destructing right in front of us. It's, it's amazing that these people don't think. Austin Aries, at this point, doesn't just need to log off. He needs to delete his account and just go away for a while and let this go away and then come back on Twitter three months from now. And yeah, people are going to take shots at him and they're never going to let him, you know, some people are never going to let him forget about it, but he needs to ignore it and stop poking bears. I have a feeling that this is not the last we're going to speak about this because he won't shut the out. As I'm recording this, he still hasn't shut the hell up about it. It's amazing to me. He doesn't realize that there's the real danger that his job is at stake. Because as it stands, he right now he's an NXT guy. And to be completely honest, if this thing blows up, he really isn't worth the trouble to his employer. You got to know your place too. Hi everybody, Rob McCarron here, pausing from this Voices of Wrestling podcast for just one moment to remind you to check out VoicesOfWrestling.com this week. A big look from Garrett Kidney at TNA's Identity Crisis highlights the week in editorials, plus a fun event we did on Thursday. Rich Krejci is out, the boss is gone, we went a little silly. Listicle Mania up at VoicesOfWrestling.com, be sure to check it out. And this is the final week a VOW Match Madness. Match Madness is in the final four right now at the Voices of Wrestling forums. Go to voicesofwrestling.com slash forums and make sure you vote in the big semifinal matches. Kevin Owens versus Zack Sabre Jr. as well as Kazuchika Okada going up against Shinsuke Nakamura. Be sure to vote in Match Madness at voicesofwrestling.com slash forums. We now get back to Joe Lanza and the Voices of Wrestling podcast. All right, part three of this mega makeup podcast. We weren't here last week to talk about WrestleMania weekend. So we're going to do it now. I did save it for the third segment. This way, if people are all wrestlemania out and tired of hearing about WrestleMania weekend because you've heard about it on 19 different podcasts by now, uh, you could easily just bypass this part of the show. See, I think about you, the listener, sometimes. Um, here's the thing. I'm not going to talk about WrestleMania itself, as in, you know, the WWE event on Sunday, because... Look, you've probably read a thousand reviews, hopefully on our site. You've probably heard a bunch of different reviews. And if you want to hear my take on the WrestleMania show, you can go to our YouTube channel, the Voices of Wrestling YouTube channel, and you can check out the Voices of Wrestling Live that I did with Rob McCarron uh, after the show, uh, after WrestleMania. We went on live and we did over an hour's worth of WrestleMania talk. So if you need all of my hot takes on the two-week-old WrestleMania show, you can find those on WrestleMania Live. I do believe that's also on the audio feed. So if you guys subscribe to the audio feed, the WrestleMania, uh, I'm sorry, the Voices of Wrestling Live WrestleMania edition with myself and the airport Rob McCarron should be somewhere in your feed, and some of you may have already listened to it. So not going to do WrestleMania thoughts, but I am going to walk you through my WrestleMania weekend and give you my general overview of uh, some of the winners and losers. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to sit here and review shows for you. I did attend five or six shows over the course of the weekend. I'm going to go over some of the highlights, some of the lowlights, and tell you what my weekend was like. So, basically, I got into town on Thursday. And let me tell you, in a good example of you get what you pay for, I had the world's worst hotel room. 
the world's worst hotel room. Let me tell you. I went to Dallas blind with now a single ticket in hand because I'm a maniac and I enjoy the thrill of not knowing whether I'm going to get